This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Hello, this is Eric Rostad coming to you right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I'm going to cover Killing Commendatore by Haruki Murakami. This is book 24 of 52 for my 2019 reading list. This episode will consist of three segments. The first will be a brief introduction of the book, the author, why I read it, and my initial reaction. Second segment, I'll cover some ideas that stuck out to me and still have me thinking, and I'll also cover a, a criticism I have of the book. And the final segment, segment three, is the one thing, my one key takeaway from this book. So on to segment one. The author is Haruki Murakami. He was born in 1949 in Kyoto, Japan. He is an only child. His father was the son of a Buddhist priest, and his his father was involved in World War II and was deeply traumatized by by that war. Murakami himself was heavily influenced by Western culture, uh, both novels and music, and that comes through in in his writing. Uh, Some Japanese authors don't consider him a true Japanese author because he has been so heavily influenced by by Western culture, but uh, perhaps that's why he is so beloved around the world. His, His books have been translated into a number of languages. His first job was at a record store, and he also ran a jazz bar. And I'm sharing a lot of these things because they should stand out as uh, you, you should see some connections to characters in Killing Commendatore uh, and, and parts of Murakami's life that, that bleed into to this work. Murakami is also a, a runner, and he has also translated a number of books into Japanese. So, for instance, works by F. Scott Fitzgerald. He's, he's translated some of those into to Japanese. In April 2015, he was named one of Time 100's most influential people. And I want to share one quote that's always bugged me about Murakami. And it's a quote I see a lot of people put up on Twitter. And it goes like this. If you only read the books that everyone else is reading, you can only think what everyone else is thinking. End quote. I hate that quote. I hate it. I I don't believe it at all. And I always wonder, what was Murakami thinking saying that? If you only read the books that everyone else is reading, you can only think what everyone else is thinking. I talk to people all the time that read the same books that I do, and we get vastly different things out of those books. But when I looked up this quote to, to see where it actually came from, it's not like Murakami was talking about in, in general about, uh, about reading and, and making this statement for, for people that read books that, that a lot of other people have, have read. This, this comes from a quote, so it's, it's coming from a character in his book. And yes, it may hit on, uh, on a philosophy that, that Murakami has, but it's a character in a book, and when it's within context, it's not as, it's not as striking as, as how people usually present it. And I was, I was thinking about it. It's like, what if Mickey Mouse said something in a, in a cartoon? Would, would you attribute, would you say Walt Disney said this, even though it was 
Mickey Mouse who said it. I, you, you wouldn't. And so I think you got to be careful with, with quotes taken out of a book because that doesn't mean Murakami believes it. Uh, and it's kind of, in a way, taking it out of context when when it's not something that Murakami just said, but rather is, is something a character said. So I'm glad I cleared that up in my own head because it's something that's bothered me. But uh, I, I'll link in the show notes to to the entire segment. And it, it's in a, an excerpt from his book, Norwegian Wood. So a little tangent there, but uh, let's get back to the, the storyline of, of Killing Commendatora here. The book itself is, is written in first-person narrative, and it's considered to be historical fiction, although that seemed a bit of a, a stretch for me. Uh, one of the other books on the, the list this year was The Widow of the South, and that takes place in Franklin, Tennessee. It's There's actual people who lived, and it takes place at a plantation that you can still go to. And so to me, that's historical fiction because it's taking a lot of pieces that that were there and then creating a story around around that kind of embellishing what you know and and cr- kind of filling in the gaps whereas this didn't feel like that to me um yeah it referenced some historical events but it wasn't that deeply embedded i mean it's more like modern day happenings but they go back in time at at some points and talk about world war 2 and and uh different events uh but not necessarily that um, that it was historical fiction in that sense. So that, that seemed weird that uh, that it's labeled as that. But anyway, into the story here, uh, we've got an unnamed protagonist. And by unnamed, I mean there are 681 pages in this book, and we never learn the main character's name, which is interesting and, and is something I've been thinking about. Why, you know, why is he not ever named? Everyone else in the, in the story is named. But anyway, the unnamed protagonist, he is fresh from a divorce uh, or a divorce that's kind of in, in the works. And to get away, he, uh, he does a little trip and then winds up at a, a friend of his, his father's house. The father's just gone into a nursing home. And so uh, the friend allows him to stay in this that's how the, the protagonist to stay in the, in the house uh the the father was a, a famous painter and so when when the main character goes into this house there's a studio set up and there's also uh the the records of of this painter the the audio records so uh, operas classical music that sort of thing so he discovers an unknown painting by this artist uh who's tomohiko is is his name and the the painting is called killing commendatore which is where we get the title of the book but this depicts a scene from the opera don giovanni by mozart and it's actually the opening scene of that opera and so killing commendatore is a painting that that takes that scene but puts it into a japanese style a painting and over time this painting comes to life uh some of the People in the painting, uh, I guess, kind of come out of the painting, and and you can talk to them. Uh, the main character can see them and talk to them, and they're they're two two foot tall people, but he can talk to them, and and it goes further where he he join he goes into this underworld, and comes out the other side. He he goes through this ordeal, and he enters the painting in in a way, and that's kind of part of the the underworld. He's He's got to do what happens in the painting to to enter this this underworld. 
So the, the protagonist is a painter himself. So he goes into the studio and he paints a lot, but he, he does find this, this painting, the killing commendatory painting in, in the attic. It's hidden away. And that, that's what, what uh, gets this whole story going. I don't want to give away too much because I, I don't want to give any spoilers. And, uh, and, and so just kind of a brief overview of, of what the story is and, and the name where we get killing commendatory. I read today, uh, so after reading the book, that this is a loving homage to The Great Gatsby. Now, I have not read The Great Gatsby for many years. I, I, I read it in high school, and when I read in high school, I didn't like reading because it was forced. And so I don't remember a lot of what happened in The Great Gatsby, and I haven't even seen the the latest movie, so I, I can't even really think to, to storyline in that, in how it would line up with this. But I think it would be neat to read the two books, uh, side by side, uh, you know, one, one before the other, and then, and then see why this is an homage to the great Gatsby. The structure of the book, it's broken up into two parts. The first part is called the idea made visible. And so it, it kind of, the, the painting, the killing commendatory, the ideas in that painting becoming, visible becoming actual people and then the shifting metaphor is part two as for who suggested the book i suggested this one to myself Uh, this is usually a part where i tell where i first heard about the book Uh, but it was more i was introduced to murakami through a friend of mine who i'd seen she posted on instagram that she had read 1q84 and this was probably five ten years ago and that was the first time I'd ever heard Murakami's name. And she was just raving about this book, saying that, that she just loved it. And so kind of, kind of got me interested in, in Murakami. And so last year, I read one of his nonfiction works, which was what I talk about when I talk about running. So I'm a runner. I, I saw Murakami was a runner and thought it, this would be a good introduction to him. And I, I'm, I'm glad I started out with that book because not only does he talk about running and, and that got me fired up, but he also talks a lot about his writing style and, and, and also music. Uh, so it, it was neat. You get a little picture into Murakami's life. And so I read a nonfiction work of his, even though he's best known for his fiction work. So this here was my first fiction work, and, and this is my first fiction work by him, The Killing Commendatore. So that's how I was introduced to Murakami. And then I decided, I, I saw this book in my favorite bookstore here in Franklin, Tennessee, Landmark, and I picked it up and then added it to my list this year. I read it between June 23rd and July 2nd of this year. So I'm recording this July 3rd, 2019. So I just finished it late last night. It took me nine days to read. It's a 681 page book. So that's roughly 76 pages per day, which is on the high end for me. I, I need to maintain about a 47 pages per day clip to get through all my books this year. So when, when it's above that, I, I, I am in, that means I'm enjoying the book and I'm making my way through it rather quickly. It took a total of 17 hours, 39 minutes and 22 seconds. Yes, I track this stuff. I, I enjoy seeing how long books take. And I, I do that also so that you get uh, kind of an estimate on, on what the amount of time it, it would take you. I, I'm not a fast reader. I don't f- speed read or anything. So 
17 hours, 39 minutes, and 22 seconds may seem like a lot, but the, the average American watches four and a half hours of TV a day. So that's only four hours of TV time for the average American. So you could, if you stopped, if, you, if you're doing that right now, four and a half hours of TV, and you stopped doing that and picked up this book, you would get through it in four days. So just, uh, it's, it's, it's not a lot when you put it in, in those terms. As for my initial reaction, this was, this was like the perfect book for me. I love music. I love art. And for those things to be referenced throughout the book was really cool. Uh, there's opera references. Uh, obviously, the Killing Commendatore is a scene from Don Giovanni. So he goes into Don Giovanni. He goes into different recordings of Don Giovanni. And he goes into other operas as well. And he he talks about Bruce Springsteen albums, uh, other classical works, Thelonious Monk. And so as I'm reading this book, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling up these albums and I'm listening to them. And it... It just it added another dimension to the book. Not only was it cool to learn about these works of, of music, but also to listen to them while I was reading. It just really enhanced the whole thing. And, and it introduced me to new music as well. Uh, I'd heard of Thelonious Monk. I, I'd probably heard his music, but I'd never consciously said, hey, I'm going to get this album and, and listen to it. And so I've, I've, I've done that with a few of, of Thelonious, Thelonious Monk's albums since reading this book. And it just kind of brings back memories from the book. So I, I would put it on while I was reading it and yeah, it was, it was so cool. So I, I thought of this book as, as a puzzle and it, it had that feel to where you, you, when you're reading it, you had to remember what you were reading. So it was almost like you had to grasp this piece of the puzzle from this part of the book and just keep it on the table there while you're reading the rest. And I, I took a ton of notes in the back of the book. I, I write quite small and the back two pages of this book are completely filled. And so I, I was, and, and I read it so quickly that I was remembering a lot, uh, of, of what had happened and things that were said, but even I, even stuff I would forget and I would, I would flip flip back. Like there was not wasted words, especially at the be- beginning of the book. Everything tied together, and things that may have seemed like an offhand comment, they came back and they played a part in in what was happening. So it was really cool, like in that sense of of these different pieces of the book kind of coming together to to create a puzzle. So as for who should read this book, if you're an artist, you will really enjoy this book because the the main the protagonist is an artist. And so he's also going through a rough spot in his life. He's come from a point to where he was just doing commercial commercially viable paintings. Of, uh, he was doing portraits. And that was not what he wanted to be doing, but it paid the bills. And he wanted to experiment more with art. And, and so part of this book is, is his process of, of, of gaining that back of, of doing portraits, but doing them in a different way than, than he had been doing and, and kind of getting back into that artistic process. In, in that sense, it it was as good as a lot of the nonfiction books I've read about creativity and, and art, because you, you're actually following this guy's life and kind of seeing as he's as he's moving along, so if you're an artist, uh, it's it's cool to see this whole 
artistic process and, and also hear about other artists throughout the book. Also, if you're into surreal books, I, this, this was, this was cool. I mean, it, it, there's a, a delicate line between dream and reality in this book. And it, and it makes me think of, of the Shakespeare line. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And I think it's, it's fun to, to challenge your mind with books like this in, in the sense of, could that be real? Could, could that happen? I mean, there's so many things in this book where it's like, it's just past the line of like, okay, that's, that's probably not real or, or it couldn't happen, but could it? It, it kind of makes you think, and, and there's some things that are like totally wacko in this book as well. So it, it, it goes way past that line, but I love that, that tension of, of being right on the line of like, could that happen or, or, or not? And, and, uh, Murakami has talked about this in, in his, the surrealism in his books. And he, he made a comment that people in times of turmoil and political chaos really enjoy his books. And here's the start of his quote. I was so popular in the 1990s in Russia at the time they were changing from the Soviet Union. There was a big confusion and people in confusion like my books. And in Germany, when the Berlin Wall fell, there was confusion and people liked my books. So I liked this one. Maybe, maybe I'm confused, but um, I, it reminded me a lot of, of uh, 100 Years of Solitude where, where there's just like this dreamlike aspect to the book. So if you're into that, you, you will really enjoy this book. And, and from what I've heard of, of other Murakami fiction, uh, a lot of his books, if not all of them, have that, that surrealism uh, aspect to it. I also want to say who should not read this book. And if you're... 18 or under, you should, you, you should ju- just not read it. Uh, and I'll put it this way. Hong Kong's Obscene Articles Tribunal <laughs> classified this book as indecent material. Uh, and it's designated Class 2, which means if you are a bookseller or a retailer and you have this book out and it is not wrapped with a warning if it when it's displayed on the shelf, you run the risk of getting 12 months in prison and a $51,000 fine just for for having the book, like showing the cover of this book. And there's nothing lewd on the cover or anything, but uh, you have to have the book wrapped and then a, a proper warning on it. So it's almost like cigarettes. And there are, I, I get, I call it like sexy time in the book. Like there are just a lot of crude scenes of that. And so that, that's a warning before this, before this book, you may not enjoy it. If, if, I mean, I, I did not like a lot of those scenes. It was, it was crude and it, it, it was unnecessary in the book as well. Uh, and the Hong Kong government said it was uh, indecent material. So warning to those that uh, you may not like it for for that reason here's a quick reading tip before we get into segment two here if you are wanting to get through more books the best way i found to do that is to one set a set a goal for how many books you want to read and then determine a specific time frame. So for me, I want to read 52 books and I want to read that in 52 weeks or one year. So that means a book a week roughly, but 
it doesn't mean that because some of my books are a lot longer than others. So this one, Murakami's book was 681 pages. Some of the other books are 200 pages. So the best thing to do is once you've found your list and you've determined the books that you want to read, go onto Amazon or something and, and, and you can look up how many pages each book has. Put that all down and add all those pages together and then divide it by the number of days that are in the time period that you want to read. So for me, I have 17,000 something or 18,000 something pages that are in the 52 books that I want to read. When I divide that by 365, that means I need to read 47 pages per day. And that's really my, my guide. I, uh, I can usually do that within one or two hours a day. So I know if I have not read one day that I, I need to make up for that on another day. So a day where I have time to read 100 pages, that's going to make up for the day that, that uh, kids are sick or, or work is, is crazy and I don't get any reading time. But most of the time I get in some reading and so it's just kind of a balance and trying to maintain that, that 47 pages. So instead of thinking about it in terms of how many books you want to get through, uh, start out with that as your goal, but then the, on the day-to-day, daily habit type part of it, put it down into what that means in pages per day, and that, that'll be a big help for you. So now going into segment two, the first big idea that stuck out to me was was this balance or conflict or dance between dreams and reality. When I dream about someone at night, I I often wonder if they had that same dream from the opposite point of view. So if I've, if I've met up with a friend that I haven't seen in, in 10 years or something in my, in my dream, did that friend have the same dream? And I don't think, I don't think that that does happen, but it's something I wonder about. And, and Murakami talks about that in this book. And there's actually parts where the protagonist wonders if he impacted somebody through his dreams and were they able even though they were miles apart were they able to to reach each other in some in some way and it just got me thinking about about that further and i th- i think it would be kind of a a known thing by now if if um it, through tests and studies if if you had a dream or or you could just ask your friend if they had the same dream uh that night that that you had and uh i don't think that's the case but it is kind of something fun to think about. And, and he, he goes into that quite, quite extensively in this book. And we also like every morning that the protagonist wakes up, we get this description of how he slept and if, if he dreamed or not. So some nights there were, it was completely dreamless. Uh, other nights he dreamed, but he totally forgot it upon waking up. And then other times he had very vivid dreams and, and we hear about those dreams. So dreams are a big part of this book but it's mixed with reality. And then there's also this idea of the, the killing Commendadore painting that becomes real. Uh, people in the painting become actual physical people in the book. So it's idea, an idea from the painting taking physical form. It's almost, uh, it made me think of the, the word becoming flesh in a way, uh, uh, the idea taking physical form. And here are a couple other quotes along this line. 
uh, these lines of, of dream versus reality. There are plenty of things in history that are best left in the shadows. Accurate knowledge does not improve people's lives. The objective does not necessarily surpass the sub- subjective, you know? Reality does not necessarily extinguish fantasy. thought that was cool. Reality does not necessarily extinguish fantasy. And the other one it, uh, comes to, later in the book. And here it goes. There are channels through which reality can become unreal or unreality can enter the realm of the real. And he talks about Van Gogh's painting of the mailman. And if you're not familiar with that, just do a quick Google search and, and, and look at it. You, you'll probably recognize it. It's a, it's a famous painting. But Murakami talks about that of, is this person real? Well, they're not. I mean, it's a painting, so it's you're looking at a painting, but that person was real. Uh, so that the unreality of the painting is entering the realm of a real person, and a real that person is an idea in your mind. Like when when I read about the Van Gogh's mailman, that image of that painting came up in my head because I've seen it before. So there there's this balance throughout the book of where do ideas come from. Uh, what what channels are they coming from? Uh, are they real? Are they unreal? Are they becoming real from the unreal? And so that that whole, that whole balance it's 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 fun. It's uncomfortable at times, but it uh, it's a neat dance. And and I love when when authors do that in in books. I also want to just describe some some other books that this one reminded me of, and some of them have been from the. Books of Titans project where I've read these books, but other of them uh, I've read before the the project. So the first one was was one I've, I read a long time ago, but it's the picture of of Dorian Gray, and in that book, there is a the the protagonist in that book he has a portrait done of himself, a, a painting, and then he puts that painting in a closet or an, or an attic of of some sort, and then he just goes out and lives this total debauched life. But he physically does not change. So he'll be up all night, and in the morning he looks fresh. He looks great. He does terrible things to his body, but nothing is happening to his physical appearance. But it is happening to the painting that's in the attic. So when you go in and look at that painting, it's he's de- de- decomposing his fit. You know his the the wear and tear is showing on that painting and it, it becomes so bad that he takes a sword and stabs the painting like he wants to kill that he doesn't want that part to be known and there there's similar things in this book the killing commendadore painting when we first encounter it it's hidden in an attic because it 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 actually points to a period of the artist's life where he was part of an assassination plot in Austria against the Nazis and he made it out alive, but everyone else that was a part of that assassination plan was, was killed and brutally killed. And, and so that painting is, is a picture, but it's something that he wants to hide. He he didn't want that the world to know about that. And then the protagonist in the, in the book, he paints a picture of what he calls the guy with the white Subaru Forester. And this, this guy knows something that the protagonist did 
And so it's almost like his conscience or some somebody knowing what you've done. And so he paints a portrait of this guy and then he also hides that painting and puts it into the attic. And and there's this idea of, of putting things away that you don't want. And, and it, it reminded me of, of the picture of Dorian Gray. Second book this reminded me of, and I, I'm sorry for even mentioning this, but uh, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. The Da Vinci Code, there's a code within Da Vinci's paintings. That's that's the, the premise uh, that Da Vinci was trying to tell us things through his paintings. Um, it, it's, it's a novel. It's, it's, it's a work of fiction, but it, there's a lot of similarities in, in, in this sense to where the Killing Commendadore painting, although it's not a real painting in history, it's, it's giving codes, it's giving information into this person's life. And I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more in the next segment. But it made me think of the Da Vinci Code, which is another book that I read uh, a long time ago, uh, well before this, this project. Another book is 100 Years of Solitude, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And again, that's another book of, of surrealism and that dividing line between dreams and reality. So if, if you like... If you like 100 Years of Solitude, which I, I did, you, you will also like Murakami's books. And the other one it reminded me of is one that I, I recently read and, and covered in a recent episode of the podcast, and that is Splendor of God. And I, I talked about this in the episode, but this idea of being face-to-face with somebody. And in Killing Commendatory, the protagonist is a portrait artist, and somebody hires him to, to do a painting— uh, to do a portrait, and he can't do it at first because he doesn't know the person. He can't. He can. He can do other parts of the painting, but he can't draw the face because he doesn't know the person yet. And so, it, I, I, I like thinking about that. I like the, uh, thinking of this idea that of, of being face to face with somebody, of, of seeing the nuance of expression, and it's it's an idea that it, it comes up quite a bit in a lot of the books of Titans books. So it's something that also came up again in, in this one. As for criticism, criticisms for the book, I, I have one, and that's that the first 75% of the book was, I, I, I was, I'll put it this way, I was unbelievably impressed with how everything fit together. Like there were no extra words in the sense, I mean, it was very tidy. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, offhand comments, they would come back to play a role in the story. So that's the first like 500 or so pages. The rest, so like the last quarter, it, it almost seemed to me like it the book was rushed out to to get it published. Things became untidy and it, it didn't have that tidiness of, of the first three-fourths of the book. So, for example, one of the characters is reading a particular paperback novel in, in different parts of the book. And so every time she goes to this one house, she's reading parts of this book. And she won't ever tell the name of the book because she, she says if she, whenever she tells somebody the name of the book she's reading, she doesn't read it from that point on. So she wants to get through this book. She really likes it. Um, we're, we're, we're continually reminded of this book. And she's getting towards the end of the book, and I keep waiting for it. I'm like, okay, when when are we going to find out what the book was that she was reading? 
and we never find out. And it just, it seemed odd because there, there were no, there weren't other loose ends like this in the other part of the book. I mean, it's very tidy. And then you have this kind of build up to, oh, what, what's the book that she's reading? And then nothing, like not even referenced again that she finished the book or anything. So that seemed really odd to me. And then the, the end of the book where the protagonist goes through this, this ordeal kind of goes into the underworld. It, it was almost too much where, where that dividing line between dream and reality was, was pretty close. Uh, it it would, it would go a little bit far away, but then kind of come back to where, yeah, that could potentially happen. This was like, La La Land. This was this was something else. Like where he he goes into the underworld, and it was almost like a forced hero journey. Is is what it it felt like. Uh, we we have to take the protagonist through through the hero's journey. He's got to confront his deepest fear. He's got to cross the river. He's got to do these things um, that are that are the hero's journey. So we we got to force this in at the end here. And yeah, I guess is the best way I can describe it. It just it's it seemed forced and. It was weird. Just like the last twenty five percent of the book, it, it kind of it, it didn't have the same feel as the first seventy five percent. And so I'm not sure if other people felt that way as well. But uh, that, that's my one main criticism for the book. Now on to segment three and the one thing, my one key takeaway from this book, and it's this. Murakami presents this idea of artists making confessions through their work. And it, it just got me thinking. I, it it kind of made me wonder if other artists had, had done that. And, and maybe to even look into artists' lives more and, and see if you could find some, tr- some, some threads. Or, or I guess just ask the question, why was the, this painting painted this way or what did this person why was this person in the painting why are they making this this expression uh just kind of made me think so i, I want to read a few few quotes from the book along these lines and then also talk about murakami himself so the first one deals with the artist who painted killing commendatore in in this book Generally speaking, I said, that might be so, but the painting is calling out to anyone who sees it. I get the sense that Tomiko Amada, who was the artist, painted it to privately capture an event that was essential to him, but he could not share with others. He changed the characters and setting to another age and made a metaphorical confession using his newly acquired skills in Japanese style painting. End quote. So I love that phrase, made a metaphorical confession into about events that were essential to him that but he could not share with others and we we find out what those events are in the book but it was a really cool idea to me that um that an artist would 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 do a confession of things that that he or she couldn't talk about but could put them in art and maybe it was art that they didn't uh expect anyone to see or or maybe art that was was released after their death but just that idea kind of sparked sparked ideas in, in, in my head. The second one now is the protagonist in the story where we, we, where we don't know his name, but uh, here's him talking about him painting. I was painting, I was painting Mari, Marie's portrait. 
Yet I could sense elements of my dead sister Komi and my former wife Yuzu creeping into the work. That This wasn't intentional. They worked their, their way in quite naturally. Perhaps I was searching within Marie for reminders of those two women, so important to me, whom I had lost. I couldn't say if this was healthy or not, but what was the only way I could paint at the time? No, to say at the time is off the mark. When I thought about it, I had operated like this from the very beginning, giving form to what eluded me in reality, inscribing secret signals only I could decipher. End quote. <laughs> That's cool. Giving form to what eluded me in reality, inscribing secret signals only I could decipher. So here he is painting this portrait of this of this young girl, and he he almost can't even see the young girl because all what he's seeing is his sister who passed away when she was the same age as, as this girl in front of him, and then also his wife. So even though this artist is trying to paint a portrait, he's seeing other people. And then he's trying to give form to what eluded him in reality. Maybe things he can't even express. The, maybe the pain from, from his sister dying young. Maybe the pain from his divorce. Those things are creeping in to the art. So again, just the, this idea of the artist sharing things about their own life through their, their works of art. And that may seem like a really obvious thing, but but for some reason it, it struck me from this book. The the final thing I want to share along these lines is related to Murakami, the the author himself. And it, in preparing for this episode, I I was looking up information about Murakami, and I came across a photo of his desk. And in in Killing Commendatore, there's there's a character and the and there's a description of, of his desk and it's neat and all the pencils are are trimmed to the same same height and they're all sharpened and he's got a, a state of the art Apple desktop on the on the on the desk and you look at this photo of Murakami's desk and it in it exactly that it's these pencils that are sharpened they're all the they're roughly the same size there's the the new uh, Apple desktop on the on the computer so he, he's like describing his desk but in this this character uh and it's not the protagonist it's someone else in the, in the in the in the story and so there's there's that but then there's also murakami's deep love of, of music and so in that same photo where you see murakami's desk you also see behind that a record player and then on the right side of that room is a wall of shelves. And there are not any books on those shelves. It is all records. And so in in this book there is a there's a deep love of, of records that that come out in music and the experience of putting a record player on and especially listening to an opera on a record player or or he, he describes listening to Bruce Springsteen as well and there's one album where there's a specific point where you've got to get up and flip that record over and it's the perfect spot to to flip it over because it goes from this song to that song and then also with opera with the opera you, you it would oftentimes be be two different records so four sides total so you're listening to the opera and you've got to get up at one point from the sofa or wherever you're listening flip it over put it back on, put the, put the needle back on the record. And just this description of, of, I, I guess, more engaging with, with music, whereas I just get on Apple music and, and search for it and, and bam, I, I can 
choose from 10, 10 different recordings of the opera, uh, that compared to, to really savoring that, that experience with, with the record. That was cool. So maybe not as sinister of the, in, in the sense of, of the, the way art makes its way through the art, the artist making its way through the art, but with Murakami, it's more you know, things he's interested in and, and perhaps taking from his own desk and that that sort of thing. And then, as I stated, parts of his life. If you've read the book, you'll you'll notice a lot of those things show up uh, with trauma from World War II, um, a, a Buddhist priest, um, different different pieces that that come through. So neat neat thing that to think about and something I'm still thinking about af- after having read this book. So to recap, this I, I really enjoyed this book. It's 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 vying for the the top position of the books I've read so far for 2019. It's it's tied up there with all the King's Men, and it it struck a chord with me with the musical references and it it really being like a putting a puzzle together. But it was also a very interesting story. Uh, Murakami has this ability to, I mean that the, the most of the book takes place within maybe like a mile uh, of of three different houses within that mile, and a lot of it takes place there. But you are embedded in this world. You you feel like you're there, and you can picture it, and and then the surreal aspects of it, the the dreamlike aspects. It's just you are within this world, and it's it's a cool experience. I I really enjoyed this work, and I and I. I hope to, to read more of Murakami's books in, in years ahead. That's going to do it for this episode. Before I sign off, a reminder that you can now share your reading list on the Books of Titans website by going to booksoftitans.com forward slash my books. You can also follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter at Books of Titans. And if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to this podcast and find all of our past episodes through iTunes, the Android Marketplace, or your podcast manager of choice. If you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure to give it an effusive five-star rating on iTunes and share your favorite episodes on social media. I'll be back next week covering Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie. Until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out. Thank you.